You're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with memoirist and poet E.J. Coe. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. I'm going to read a part about my grandmother, Kumiko, who's my father's mother and the grandmother who raised me. And it's a little bit about her time at Jeju Island and when her and her parents were hiding out in the mountain at the time. And her father, to check on their friends and neighbors, comes down the mountain and he hasn't returned for several days now. When Kumiko and her mother came down the mountain, the island was scorched. They passed through burnt villages, their voices lodged in their throats. Many of the dead could not be found, their bodies tossed over cliffs, hidden away in caves or chopped into bits, signs of covering up. Mothers cupped the air with their hands, holding the missing faces of their husbands and sons. Their wailing and screaming filled the hearts of all who sifted through the remains. Teeth, hair, dead horses and pigs, then mosquitoes. The smoke reddened the sun. They covered their mouths, or they would taste the corpses. There were children, the girls Kumiko played with, and women and men lying with limbs bent over each other, splayed across the road. Tens of thousands of them idle along collapsed terraces where the islanders once danced, pumping with life. It was Kumiko who crossed the road over a bridge and came to a part of the ground soaked in blood. When she asked after her father, somebody pointed to this ground. She saw nothing except the many faces around her mouths wide and sullen. One islander, a grandmother, said to her, your father was captured at the bottom of the mountain and dragged into a demonstration. She explained that a demonstration was a public display. A group of men, unfed and irate, corralled a crowd together. They put on such displays on behalf of the country and on higher orders foregoing restraint. What evil was born out of demonstrations? Then where is he? Kumiko asked. The grandmother opened her palm toward the ground. Here, looking closer, flesh and bone, gristle mistaken for bark and debris between the stones. At once the road became vivid and Kumiko recognized her father. Road, father, road. They stoned him until he was gravel. The grandmother said as though she were not speaking to Kumiko, but a deity who had come down from the mountain to judge her for the truth. Many of us stoned him to prove our innocence. We stoned our own again and again. They stoned him overnight. They pitched blunt rocks harder over days for sport until finally boredom before the body was pulverized. What was exchanged between the police and the groups of men and the islanders, between the rocks and the bones, between the body and the road? 
what was supposed to be understood. Though they did not know it, the days that Kumiko and her mother spent hiding on the mountain were given a name. Such were the questions raised by the Jeju Island Massacre of April 3rd, 1948. So I imagine that, um, and so many uh, passages in your memoir were difficult to write, difficult to approach, and it just strikes me how much your memoirs, uh, there's a work of many kinds of translation, because you're writing across time, you're writing across languages. Just tell us a little bit of how, how you approached that passage and the organization of your book. That's very true. For this certain passage about what happened in Jeju Island, it was something I heard since I was a little girl. Um, there's another thread in this book, another story, which is of my mother's mother and her tragic death in Korea when my mother was just a teenager. And both the story of my mother's mother and my father's um, mother's experience with her family. I mean, these were like my bedtime stories. They were stories I remember and I listened to before I could speak. I had um, sort of delayed speech and I had quite a bit of trouble with learning and also with just simply getting into school. I think I must have been uh, five before I was uttering some of my first words and trying to um, articulate, but simple communication was very difficult for me and was difficult for my family, especially in a family where we're speaking several languages. I think they're, they hope to instill English in me. It's the language of survival um, once they immigrated to the States. And my, my grandmother, um, my father's mother who raised me was speaking Japanese. That was her private language. It was a remnant of of the past and sort of the, 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 the past of the occupation with um, Korea being occupied by Japan. And my, my mother and father spoke in Korean and this was a much more intimate language that I wanted to have access to but would also keep me away from the English that they hoped me to get. And all of this was sort of compounded by my um, difficulty with speech. And so there was a lot of frustration and fear and um, my relationship to language and the relationship that these languages had to each other, that was something I felt very sensitive to since I was uh, young, since before I could speak. I think I knew these things before um, and maybe it contributed to the fear of, of engaging these languages. So. Um, these stories, they they were something that that felt a way to not only look at the language and history, and and it also became a drive for me later in life to to do the research and find the the overlapping points of contact in re recorded history. How where are we here on this day, on this date, and where is my family? Especially with those histories that don't have records that have records that were sort of burned away 
Um, there's a lot of uh, different types of labor that goes into it, not just the, the reading of history through different languages and the perspective of different countries, but also being able to see um, what's not being said and um, making space for the, the oral testimonies. And I'd like to talk more about this hesitancy that you had to begin speaking fully. You obviously had these perceptions and you were taking in a lot, being in a trilingual household, um, family, and with all of these influences coming in. I'm very interested in the origins of that. I think that people in different periods of their life, periods of silence, I know when I immigrated, I became more quiet than I had been when I was in America. And then I became loud as I am now. As a poet, you have a facility with language, a precision in terms of what you mean to say, what you're feeling, what you're thinking. Some of the expressions you used were making space. So the silence is a way to make space. Were you hesitant to make mistakes as well because you're dealing with these different languages and maybe you're not feeling at home in all of them? Yes, I'd love to speak to that. And I hear you when you say that um, the experience of being relocated or dislocated in some sense can create us to be quiet and then slowly um, sort of with some hesitance come come reveal ourselves again. And, uh, and I feel that that's true with uh, every time I move. So um, thank you for bringing that up. Thinking about your question here, I'm reminded of the, the title of the me memoir is The Magical Language of Others. I mean, that really is the strangest title to give um, a, a body of work, but I remember it needed to have the word magic in it because I, I, I was doing a little, I think I was just beginning to do some research on discourse analysis and I had just met this lovely woman and she had me reading and I came across this passage that said, um, I mean, to this day, from what we know about how we communicate to each other, about how languages work, um, every word um, brings up in each person such a unique image or reference that it's actually impossible for us to understand each other completely. So for example, if I say table, the table that will sort of arise for you is very different for me. And if I uh, arrange them like table, cup, notebook, what comes to you and what might feel generally like nostalgia, maybe I'll feel that too, but it'll be very, very different from mine. And it's it was just this beautiful piece of information that seemed to make sense a lot of things for me before with speech development and finding difficulty with languages was just, I think I just needed to hear or read in this case that it's, it's near impossible for one person to fully understand another person. And yet somehow by magic, I mean, it, it, by magic, we, we love, we fall in love. We teach each other we care about each other, we have these exp uh, emotional experiences together to say, even if, you know, all of that 
seems impossible by some magic we can do these things and that always surprised me and delighted me and I thought would be so fitting to encapsulate all of this because it really it really does feel like magic and I think that's where poetry comes in for me the the difficulties I had with language and I mean in any language to try and articulate how I feel at the time or even learn the words that I didn't have so in the beginning what you you sort of see me go through having an eating disorder and you see sort of acts that uh, come from uh, having going through bulimia and then anorexia but I don't ever use these words in the book if you notice I never say eating disorder because I never had those words all it was was a thing I did and a habit and so that's how it manifests in the book is the truth to my experience was that was just something I did and this is the way I felt and it really did feel like I was at the time the only person in the world going through this really strange habit and this relationship with my body and food so um but when I came to poetry that, that this was very different because poetry has this magical essence where suddenly language felt possible in a way that any one language didn't feel possible in poetry in a poem what you can do with words I felt like oh this is a way that I could finally speak so we we think of languages and we think of the Korean Japanese and English but when you know even when I get to the moment where I was a hip-hop dancer you know we speak differently the language and lingo ch changes and then when I get to poetry that's also another sort of language it's completely different from any way I've been thinking or speaking before and it's really poetry I had to arrive at so that I could go back and be the translator you know that can translate these letters it it, it sort of goes in in this order and it's a circular circular process for me to come back we hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights to listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews click on subscribe thank you for listening